Um, Let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 22 to 39 this morning. And I invite you to turn there because it's going to be helpful as we're looking at this to be able to refer back to it. If you want to use the Bible that's in the rack in front of you, you can find uh, the passage on page uh, 1078. Now, Acts, of course, is the it's the fifth book in the New Testament. If you're just going at it uh, blind, opening up your, your Bible, immediately following the four accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and it's the, the, the sequel, if you will, uh, most specifically to the narrative that's told by Luke. Um, so it's really an exciting morning for, here, for us here, or at least it should be, and I hope that uh, as we look at this text this morning, I'll show you why it should be, because Easter is only a couple of weeks away. And we begin our focus on Easter today. And, and for, all the, for all the cultural hoopla that surrounds the Christmas season, the shopping and the parties and the gifts and the, and the food, and I love all of, those, all of those things, but for all the cultural weight that we put on Christmas, it's really Easter that makes the biggest difference. Now, listen, it's not that, there's, not that there's more theological importance to one over the other because you really can't separate them. Easter, Christmas, Good Friday, they're all, they're all absolutely critical from a theological standpoint. All of them needed to happen. But Easter, Easter makes the biggest difference, at least for our ability to believe any of what the Bible says about anything else. This is what I mean. Christmas is obviously hugely significant, right? You have the Son of God taking on the form of a human being. Right? Or Good Friday, the death of Jesus. Theologically speaking, it's probably the most theologically important three hours in the history of, of, of the world, the atoning death of the Son of God on the cross. And yet experientially, for the person living at the time, for the, for the early Christian church, and for us today, it, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the birth of Jesus that makes the most difference. It wasn't the death of Jesus that made the biggest difference. It was Easter. It was the resurrection. Why? Because it was the resurrection that proves that everything else was true. It proves that Christmas and Good Friday were true. See, if you, only had, if you only had Christmas, you'd have a claim that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God, but how would you really know? And if you only had Good Friday, you'd have a claim that this Jesus and his death atoned for your sins, but how would you really know it's true? Easter proves it's true. It's all true. And so experientially speaking, Easter makes the, the biggest difference because when the disciples witnessed the resurrected Jesus, they were absolutely transformed. Right? When the early church was given the power of the resurrected Jesus, it was transformed. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. Right? It's a story of, of experientially transformed people proclaiming a transformational message. And one of the characteristics of the book of Acts is the large number of sermons it contains, early church leaders who are preaching to, to different audiences. And the primary focus... Right? One, of, one, of the, one of the central themes of all of these sermons is the resurrected Jesus. So that's the focus that we're going to have over the next four weeks. The primacy of Easter in the preaching of Acts. And we start this morning with Peter in Acts chapter 2, the very first recorded sermon in the history of the New Testament church. The first sermon after Jesus had returned to heaven. And the occasion for it is the day of Pentecost, at the day when the Holy Spirit arrived in a powerful way. And strange things were happening. And so Peter gets up and he starts by quoting this extended passage from the prophet Joel. And then in in verse 22, he begins to preach. So that's where we're going to start reading. Verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. This is God's word. Men of Israel, 
Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. The word of the Lord. Now, what does hopelessness feel like? Hopelessness. <clears throat> Conrad Adenauer became the first chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany in 1949. It was the first elected government after Adolf Hitler had dissolved the German parliament and assumed supreme dictatorial power in the 1930s. And of course, what had happened between that and 1949 was the near destruction of, of Germany in many respects, but also, I mean, and most obviously as Adenauer surveyed the scene, the destruction of, of the country from a civil, from an infrastructure perspective. Its, its cities had been destroyed by Allied bombings. Berlin was in ruins. Right? Buildings were just mere shells, walls holding up nothing after the fires and after all the, the street fighting that had happened. And now, the government of the new West Germany had been handed over by the Western allies to Adenauer. Imagine the potential sense of, of hopelessness that someone like that must have felt. Can you relate to that feeling? Right? Hope and hopelessness. And, 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 and it, you could feel that perhaps in one, of, in one of two different ways. It could be for you very real, very, very personal right now. Maybe your life fears, feels very much like that, like, like row after row of burned out buildings, <laughs> right? A charred mess, right? Something like Adenauer uh, would, would have seen. And, 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 and Chancellor, Anson, uh, Chancellor Adenauer, um, it, it, like him, someone is, is coming to you now and say, okay, okay, here's your life. You're in charge. Now, what are you going to do with it? Hopelessness. Right. So maybe it's personal. Or maybe, though, maybe, maybe this question of hope is, is more philosophical for you right now. 
right? Less about the experience of something that you're, that you're struggling with right now, and more just sort of this, this nagging question that's in the back of, of everyone's mind that, that, that we occasionally consider. And, and, and you ask, like everyone in all ages, in all places have asked the question, is this all there is? Right? Is there anything else after this? Is there any reason for hope? And that's exactly where Peter's sermon steps in. Regardless of, of whether your question is very personal, very painful at the moment, or maybe, at least for now, the question is more abstractly philosophical for you. But in either case, Peter's sermon steps in and gives you a real reason for hope. Now, we have to be careful with terms here. We can't be sloppy because the academics and the, and the social scientists who do research in the area of, of human emotion, right, they will point out that there's a very real difference between the concept of hope and the concept of wishing. Right? We often use the terms interchangeably when we say we, 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 we want something to happen, but the researchers will tell you that at least in the meaning behind those terms, there, there's a difference. There's a difference. Now, what do I mean? Well, this is what I mean. If you, if you wish for something, this is how the researchers will make the distinction. If you wish for something, you're just really making a blind, passive expression of something that you want to happen, but that you really actually think is unlikely or that you're uncertain will really happen. Right? That's wishing. A blind, passive expression of something you want, but something that you don't believe is likely or you have no basis for really believing is likely to happen. Now, hope, on the other hand, is much more concrete much more certain. It's still future-oriented, but it's a belief that is grounded on something, right? Something that you trust to be true, something that you can hold on to. It isn't blind. But we just finished reading in our family uh, The Long Winter with the kids, the, the Long Winter, seeming a bit appropriate on the Little League field yesterday. The, the, the Laura Ingalls Wilder book um, about the Ingalls family and how they survived the the, the, the blizzards on the plains of the Dakota Plains in the, in the Dakota Territory in the winter of 1880 and 1881. And, and in the midst of those blinding blizzards, Pa Ingalls would need to make his way every day from the, from the house to the barn and back again to, to, to do the chores. Now, what would be the problem, do you think, of walking in a blizzard on the Dakota Plains even for a relatively short distance? The danger would be is that if you got turned around or blown over even a little bit, and you stood up, and you tried to walk to the house, you would have no idea where the barn or where the house actually was. No one could hear you shout, and everything around you is completely white. Now, you could pick a direction and start walking, but it would only be a wish <laughs> that you'd actually get to the warmth of the house. That's wishing. Now, if, though, instead, you tied a rope from the barn to the, to the house, Right? Then you could hold on to that rope the entire way. You still wouldn't be able to see, but what happens to your degree of certainty that you will actually get to the warmth of the house? It goes way up, right? Why? Because your belief in getting home is now tied to something. It's something you can hold on to. That's hope. You see the difference? It's a long introduction, I know, but it's important because what Peter is offering here is not a wish. It's hope. It's a hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, a couple weeks ago, if you were here, uh, Leon Brown, who was one of our guest preachers for the missions conference, uh, challenged us with a one-point sermon. It was very convicting because I don't usually preach in one point. But, but you want a one-point sermon? Here, here's the, here's the one point. One point is this. If, you want, if you're looking for any kind of certainty, leave your wishes for the stars, but cast your hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? That's your one point. 
Stars are for wishing, but the resurrection of Jesus is for hope. So I'm done, right? Should I just, there's my point. I think I should explain it, maybe, I don't know, in three. Because, because Peter, Peter explained it that way, the hope of the resurrection, and the elements are all here. Listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. And really, in my defense, you can't get upset with me. That, just, there are three points, they're just the Trinity. Right? I mean, if you're upset with the whole three-in-one concept, it's not, it's not mine. Right? It, that, that's, how, that's, how, that's how Peter, all these, all these things are here in, the, in this resurrection message, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? So, so, so here's the overall point then. You make a wish upon a star, but you cast your hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a resurrection that is planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's break down each of those. First, the resurrection is planned by the Father, right? Throughout this sermon of Peter, you have this very real sense that everything that happened to Jesus was part of the plan, right? The life and the ministry of Jesus was part of the plan, Look at verse 22, right? Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs, which he did, um, he did among you through him. God did among you through him. Who did the miracles and the signs? Well, Jesus did, but it was God the Father who was working through Jesus to do those things. Right? The death of Jesus, the death of Jesus was also part of, of God's plan. Look at verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Right? Handed over to be crucified. Who handed him over? The Father did. Right? It was according to his set purpose, a purpose that was set. He had determined it was going to happen. It was his decision. Right? The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Part of God's plan. Look at verse 24. But God raised him from the dead. And then Peter quotes this psalm from, from David, Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, right? Psalm 16 is one of, my, one of my favorite psalms, and it could be a sermon, sermon entirely unto itself. But what I want you to see is that Peter, by quoting Psalm 16 here, Peter is maintaining that Jesus rising from the dead was not a last-minute decision, right? That's, that, the Father didn't have to change, his, change the game plan when Jesus was killed. He didn't say, oh, no. Now what do we do? I wasn't really expecting them to kill him. Oh, well, I'm God after all. Let's raise him. No. That's not the way it happened. Right? And, and, and that's what Peter's saying because he says David had prophesied centuries before that God would not let his Holy One, his Messiah, see decay. And this, David says, is where his hope comes from for his own body. You see what David says? Verse 26, he, this is, he, Peter quotes David saying, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue, my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope. Why? Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. What's the source? The source of his hope. That his own body won't ultimately be abandoned. It's tied to the fact that the body of the Holy One, the Messiah, is not going to see decay. Now, David didn't have the whole theology down of how, how our resurrection hope is, is tied with the resurrection of Jesus, the whole concept of this union with Christ that Paul much more fur, fur, further develops in, in places like 1 Corinthians 15. But David knew what was important when he said this. The resurrection of the Messiah's body is where I find the hope for the resurrection of mine. The two are bound together. He knew that. 
and then the, the application for us isn't very, isn't very hard then. Right? Where's the hope for your body? It's in the eternal plan of God to raise Jesus from the dead. And that hope can be, that hope can be applied to, to anyone along the whole spectrum of potential discouragement and pain and hopelessness that you might be feeling about the decay of your own body, right? Regardless of where, of where you are. It, it can apply equally. It can apply to the, to, to the child who, who gashed his knee open at a Little League scrimmage yesterday, I saw. Or, or, or it can apply to the relatively minor reminders that we're growing older, our hair gets gray, and we think we need reading glasses. Right? Or to the more serious uncertainty of a medical diagnosis or the reality of a major surgery upcoming this week. Regardless of where you are on that spectrum or where someone you love might be on that spectrum, our hope is in the eternal plan of God that our bodies will not ultimately be abandoned to the grave because of the resurrection of the Messiah. Now, a little bit more about this Messiah. Because the resurrection is planned by the Father, but it is accomplished by the Son. In other words, it was Jesus who was the Messiah. It was Jesus who, verse 36, is Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah. He's the one who actually rose. Right? And, and, and here, I just want to focus on one very key phrase that Peter uses about the resurrection of Jesus. Just one phrase. That's where I want to focus. Look at verse 32. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. You see what Peter is saying? We are witnesses of the fact. He's saying that this, that, that this resurrection was a verifiable event that they saw with their own eyes. That the body of Jesus came back to life and they touched it with their own hands. And this is very important because it tells us that the hope of the resurrection is not in its philosophical power, but in its fundamental historical reality. The resurrection doesn't give us hope because it's an inspiring metaphor for second chances. It gives us hope because it is news of an historical event that actually happened. And the fact that it happened proves that everything else about Jesus is true. Think about this. Peter introduces us in verse 22. I just want to go back to this for a second. As Jesus of Nazareth, not, not some abstract concept of Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth, in other words, a real guy who lived in a real town, who real people knew. That's the guy. And he says that this Jesus of Nazareth did all these great signs, all these great miracles, as an accreditation that he was the Messiah. They were his, they were his claim to be the Son of God. And yet, honestly, we asked this before, remember? Honestly, how would we know for sure that he was, that he really was the Son of God? Because he did end up dead, after all. Right? For all the great claims, for all the great miracles, he ended up, just like everyone else does, dead. So how do we know that, we just, that he wasn't just some maniac with radical claims to be the Son of God? How do we know? Because he didn't stay dead. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that that actually is the proof that he's the Son of God. Paul says that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Peter was a witness to the resurrection, and that is what convinced him it was true, and it absolutely changed him. Remember how, how, how amazingly remarkable it, it is that Peter is the one who's giving this sermon. Peter the coward. Peter the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter the one who hid from the authorities after Jesus' death. It's Peter who is now boldly standing in the center of Jerusalem preaching to the crowds. How did that happen? Because he was a witness. 
a witness of the resurrection. And what he had seen changed him. See, Peter's hope didn't come from being philosophically argued into it, as if the idea of a resurrected man made philosophical sense to him as, as the ground for eternal hope. It wouldn't have. It wouldn't have made sense to him, just as, as to us. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make philosophical sense unless, unless it actually happened. Now, Peter's hope was in the fact that he had met the resurrected Jesus. He was a witness. Now, here's the good news for you then. It means that your hope in the midst of life's uncertainty is not in your ability to reason it out, understand it completely, or think about whether it makes sense to you. Your hope is in, the, is in the historical reality of an event that really happened. That's what Peter's doing here in his sermon. He's inviting his hearers to meet the Jesus that he knows, the Jesus he saw killed and the Jesus he saw raised. He's a witness to the fact. And that fact, the resurrection of Jesus, will change you, just like it did Peter. Now, how does that, how does that actually, how does it actually happen? How does the resurrection do that? It's all fine and well to say that being a witness to the fact changes you, but how? Right? That's the work of the Spirit, right? Because, because the resurrection is planned, planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, but it is applied by the Spirit. This sermon of Peter's here, after all, is the sermon that he gives at Pentecost, at the Jewish festival that became the occasion for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the followers of Jesus. That, th this wasn't unexpected, that the Holy Spirit would, would, would come in this way. Jesus had told his disciples that even though he was going to leave them after the, after the resurrection and be returned to be, with the, to, to be with the Father in heaven, he told them the Spirit of God would come, God's presence living inside with his people. And, and, and what would that Spirit do? How do we know the Spirit's at work? Well, we see the results of it right here. So the role of the Spirit the role of the Holy Spirit is to testify to the Father's plan and to the Son's work. I want you to notice, the sermon happened at, at Pentecost. This is the coming of the, of the Holy Spirit, and yet the sermon that Peter gives is not about the Holy Spirit. The sermon is about the Father and the Son. But the reason why we understand any of it is because of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the, is the spotlight that shines on the Father and the Son. You see? How do you know a spotlight in a stage production is on? How do you know the spotlight's on? Right, because you actually see the light itself? No, because you see the thing on which the light shines. In the same way, you know that the Spirit is working not when you see the Spirit itself, but when, by the Spirit, people are seeing the Father and Son to whom the Spirit testifies. And that's exactly what we see here because Peter declares the hope of the resurrection as planned by the Father and as accomplished by the Son, and then what happens? Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. Now, don't rush, don't rush past that. What cut them? What does that mean? It means that they were radically indicted. They were pierced radically indicted, indicted. They realized that they were guilty of something. Of what? Look back at verse 23. Peter says in, in, in verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, who's he talking to here? 
Right? Well, the audience would have been the crowds of Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival from all over the region. But we have to be careful. And unfortunately, it needs to be said. We have to be careful because throughout history, many people calling themselves Christians have placed the death of Jesus, the guilt for the death of Jesus, squarely at the feet of the Jewish people. And it's often been a pretext for prejudice and, and abuse and, and persecution. But that's not at all what Peter is is, is saying here. The, the Jews that were here, they were gathered. Remember, if you remember anything about Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit had to translate what was being said into the language of all the people. They were gathered from all over the area for this festival. In all likelihood, many of the people, perhaps most of the people who were standing there, weren't actually there when Jesus was crucified. So what's Peter saying? He's not saying that the blame is borne by a particular ethnic group. He's saying that the blame for the death of Jesus is borne by everyone. Our sin against God is the reason why Jesus needed to die, the reason why the resurrection is necessary in the first place. And so when it says that the people were cut to the heart, it means that it, it suddenly struck them. Wait a minute. Who's to blame here? I am. Watch how this works. Look at verse 24. But God, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death. Now, some translations that some of you might be looking at would say, he, they loosed him from the pangs of death, which is fine, but who regularly uses the word loosed or pangs? Right? It says the same thing. Regardless, right, see what this is saying. Jesus needed to be freed from the agony of death. Now, that, that's, now that's, that's just a statement that Peter's making, right? Just a statement, and you can just kind of go right by that. He needed to be released from the agony of death, right? But but a reason like, uh, the, a reason, the reason a statement like that has power is because of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is at work, a statement like that, when you read it, cuts you to the heart because you realize that the agony, the excruciating pain of the perfect Son of God is because of me. It's my fault. It's my sin. John Newton, the slave trader turned Christian pastor, the writer of Amazing Grace, he wrote another song, another poem. It was very autobiographical. This is what Newton says. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. He was cut to the heart, plunged into despair by the realization that the agonies of the Son of God were his fault. And do you see? There's the irony. The irony that Newton knew. The only way to real hope is first through despair. There's no shortcut. I was standing up here at the beginning of the service testing the microphone, and it all sounded good to me. All sounded good to me. 
I just wanted to skip right to it. Good. Mike's good? All right, be done. Right? But it wasn't. It was off. I don't know that because I'm not in the room, and I'm not the one at the board, at the master control board. And, they have, and, and, and before it got better, it sounded significantly worse. And, and that's, a, I said, wait a minute, this isn't hope. This is getting worse, not better. And the guys on the music team, of course, they're, they're, they're reminding me, look, it, it has to get worse before it gets better. And that's exactly the point. There's no real shortcut to lasting hope. You have to be cut first. Have you been cut by your sin? Your soul laid open? No place to hide? Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. The people who heard Peter, they had been cut. They were cut. And that's why they asked, what can we do? And Peter responds, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Call out to God and admit your guilt, for I, the Lord, have slain. Be baptized. Right? Be remind, reminded of the fact that the death of Jesus washes away your sins, that it brings your forgiveness. And be initiated. That's what baptism does as well. Be initiated into the resurrection community. Be a part of the visible church. Be welcomed into the community, the resurrection community of, of rescued sinners. And receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Experience the presence of God. Experience the presence of God now, not as a knife that cuts, but as a balm that heals. Right? That's what happened to John Newton. Right? The first time the Holy Spirit shines the light on Jesus, he saw the agony. He felt the, he felt the cut. Right? I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. That's what he saw the first time that, that the Holy Spirit shined the light on Jesus. But then he continues, and the Holy Spirit shines the light on Jesus again, a second look he gave, a second look, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I'll die that thou mayst live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. In 1963, while he was in the city of Berlin, Billy Graham was invited to the office of the West German Chancellor, Conrad Adenauer. And after coffee was served, Adenauer asked Billy Graham, young man, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And Billy Graham answered, I certainly do. And Adenauer said, so do I. If Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, there is not one glimmer of hope for the human race. If you want to make a wish, go find a star in a cartoon cricket. But if you want an eternal hope for life out of death, comfort out of grief, and joy out of despair, then you only find it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hope is grounded in the resurrection. Out of his death, we live. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would bring us to the place of true, lasting joy. And Lord, bring us there by way of the recognition of our own predicament, our own, our own despair, as we realize what we have done to you. But Lord, let that be then the basis for us being able to truly rejoice because as we consider what we've done to you, you will show us what you have done for us. And so it is coming in 
the hope of the resurrection of Jesus that we come today. Lord, would you use this truth to change us? May we be witnesses, witnesses to the fact, to the fact of the, the resurrection of Jesus, that by the power of the Holy Spirit changes us, that we might serve you and proclaim this message to the world. For we come praying in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.